Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Today I'm welcoming Daniel Barnett. Lovely to have you here, Daniel. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Karen. We are remembering your amazing dad, Chris Riley, who you lost COVID-19. Uh, he was just 61. He had the most remarkable and challenging life. If I could recap briefly just the outline of his life, which was that he lost his wife and the love of his life, Jeanette, in the early 1990s, fortunately, to suicide. And at the time, he had four young daughters who's blessed amongst women. Obviously, that was a huge loss for him. Uh, the suicide, as you can explain, was not expected. So there he was, self-employed dad, suddenly bereaved with four young daughters. My word, how did he come back from that? Strength determination. He was such a wonderful, inspiring individual. Now I look back, such strength. I mean, how he got through that, I I just I just don't know. Determination. Your youngest sister was only 18 months old when that happened. Yeah. Jessica, yeah. And the eldest was just eight. If you can just elaborate a little bit what led your mum to do that. I mean, it was totally unexpected. I was six, so I was quite young. I have my own memories, but anyone would describe her as a fiercely loyal mother, um, strong-willed. She was a nurse for the NHS, very intelligent, smart, funny, charismatic woman. And it was totally unexpected and totally out of the blue for her to go and leave her four babies. Now I've got two children of my own. I understand how poorly she must have been in her own head to, to go and do that and leave her children. But my dad and my mum had separated. So they were going through a divorce and she was working nights so she probably wasn't getting the sleep that she needed. I know that she had dropped a bit of weight, so she probably wasn't, you know, nourishing her body like she should have been. Four young children. Yeah, who who knows why she did what she did, but, but she unfortunately did. My dad was left to pick up the pieces um, with an 18-month-old, a four-year-old, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, completely out of the blue. My dad never moved on. So the day he died, he never found another partner. He never really looked for another partner he just kind of spent the rest of his life sadly heartbroken you know which is sad he had me and my sisters which kept him very busy (laughs) very busy and losing his hair (laughs) what do you remember about your mum I remember her funny character so I remember you know just silliness singing songs in the front room you know she was a loving woman very loving I remember throwing birthday parties for me and my older sister Camille we share a birthday hers is the 4th and mine's the 5th of July so we'd always have a joint party she'd always go out of her way to you know make it special even when she was going through the divorce I can remember our last birthday with her she still threw us a bit of a party so 
you know, she was a very loving mother, funny and I'd say childish, but, you know, somebody that you could play with or as a, as a child, I've got memories of her playing and singing songs and, you know, she was a good mum. Fantastic. It's brilliant that you've got those memories. It really is. Yeah. Such a shocking event, you know, out of the blue for him to be heartbroken and suffering that trauma, mm. and, you know, to be left in that situation. It wasn't easy. And obviously times were a little bit different. So he had to put up a fight to to keep his family together. Is that right? After your mum died? He did, yeah. So, I mean, we're talking 30 years ago. It probably wasn't as accepted as it is nowadays for a single man to raise four young daughters. So, you know, we've been told stories where the authorities had intervened and, and maybe wanted to put us into the care system. So my dad had to, you know, put up a bit of a fight to keep the family together and to say, you know, he's completely capable and able to raise his own children just because he's male and he's had four daughters makes no difference. And he did. And his mum, my nana, she would come over and she would help a lot and, you know, cook some teas while he worked late. And she would do lots of bath time and stuff like that. So he did have some help. Um, And my gran as well, my mum's mum, still with us today. And she still helps a lot, um, even though she's 87. Bless her. I won't tell her I told you all that. She's still helpful today. That allowed him to earn a wage, basically. He worked six, sometimes seven days a week. You know, he would work during the day and then in the evening he'd go out DJing you know for a bit of extra cash he worked weekends he ran his own business and then he worked for Manchester City um, as well at the weekends on match days he was one point he had three jobs that he was doing yeah so he he just worked what do you remember from your childhood I have lots of lovely memories from my childhood. After my mum passed, my dad, I think he suffered a lot with his mental health, as you can probably expect. You know, he worked a lot. I think he really struggled with low mood. But that being said, he was still a really great dad. You know, every year without fail, he saved up all year round and he took us camping to Cornwall. And it wasn't a luxury abroad holiday that some of our friends were having, but to us, it was the world. And it's where I met my husband that I've now been with for 22 years and we've got two lovely children. It's where I've got some of my fondest memories. It's now a family tradition. We go every year without fail. We go down to Tree, which is down near Penzance down near Land's End kind of way. What do you remember on the holidays with your dad? Oh, just... Very adventurous, lots of walks. Every day we did a fun day out, whether it would be Land's End, a seal sanctuary, um, you know, we were just always doing something. I mean, how he managed to do it, I just don't know, because obviously we still go camping now and we go every year at the same time. And it's hard work. I've got two little boys and it is really hard work. And that's with two parents and aunties and uncles and you know there's a huge group of us that go now it started just my dad and me and my sisters and now there's friends there's aunties there's uncles there's you know family friends there's just a huge group of us that now go every year and it's kind of branched out but that's just what type of of person he was he just attracted people just wanted to be around him why do you think that was his kind nature he was kind you'd never be judged You know, it doesn't matter what you looked like, who you were. You were accepted with open arms. You know, 
what your background was. It just didn't matter. If you were a nice, kind person, you were part of the family. Um, and we just ended up with a ever-expanding family. <laughs> so it was an open house then, really, your house? Yeah, it was. It was. You know, there were instances in the past where, you know, my youngest sister had a friend. This isn't that long ago, actually, you know, mid-20s. Her friend ended up with nowhere to live, nowhere to stay. So my dad took took the friend in, you know, and he had he gave him a room and he stayed there as a, you know, until, you know, he was in a position to get himself somewhere to go and stay. Um, he was just, yeah, open house. Yeah, very generous, kind heart. So even though, I mean, at times it must have been hugely difficult for him. And obviously you guys must have missed your mum tremendous it sounds like it was just very happy it was there were bad times too I'd be lying if I said that um you know there wasn't you know storm clouds because there absolutely was you know when I was younger I after losing my mom I struggled at school with my behavior you know I think I was just troubled sad broken-hearted you know, I really gave my dad a tough time. The normal, well, it's probably not normal, trials and tribulations of teenage girls and no mom, broken hearts. He was trying to earn what he needed to earn to, you know, give us a nice life. And so there were definitely hard times, but the the good massively outweighed the bad. And now, you know, I'm old enough to look back and, and think how he provided what he provided and gave us that stability and love you know like our our husbands my husband and my sister's husbands they'll all comment when they first met us and came into our house and stayed over for the first time and was introduced to the family in my house it's a thing you know we'd all shout night love you you know through the walls so everyone would go to bed and it'd be night Korean love you night Camille love you you know it was just such a loving house we didn't have much money we you know we we lost our mom but it, there was just so much love and my dad provided that. Chris did an amazing job. Well done him. You said he was uh, a music man. Yeah. Music. Tell me about that. When I was growing up, I have fond memories being on the back of um, floats, you know, like going through parades. My dad managed a band called Pink on Black. It was a rock band. They would go on tour. We would go with them. We'd be on the back of floats, going through crowds and all kinds of things. I'd love to do some more research and find out exactly, you know, I wonder if I could find some of their tracks, maybe. I don't know. Um, but it was, yeah, really good memories. And obviously he DJed at the weekend. There was constantly music being played in the house. He was constantly making music on his keyboard. Uh, I think you'd call it a synth, synthesizer. So, you know, we, he, all these weird and wacky gadgets for making music. He just had such a love of music. Anyone that thinks of Chris Riley, they think of music. If he was to bleed, he'd probably bleed music notes. He just loved it. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to play a couple of his favourite songs. For three days, I fought my way along roads packed with refugees, the homeless, burdened with boxes and bundles containing their valuables. All that was of value to me was in London. By the time I reached their little red brick house, Carrie and her father were gone. The summer sun is fading as the year grows old And our good days are drawing near 
meaningful for you whenever i think of my dad he loved the film war of the Worlds. so that particular track is from the film war of the worlds and he loved it he went to see it live in concert with brother my uncle niall on more than one occasion since my dad passed my uncle and my sisters they've all actually been to see it again without him just just in honor of my dad he just he loved it he loved the film he loved the music from the film I just have vivid memories of him singing to it in a, you know, really loud, bellowing voice. Sadly, now I look back and I think of the words in the song and it's probably quite fitting. And he had a good voice, did he? Singing voice? Yeah, I mean, he wasn't a singer, but he he had a good voice, yeah. It wasn't, you'd never say, oh, I've got a good voice, but, you know, he always liked to sing, you know. He was my happiest memories, or I always... Imagine my dad happy when he's in the kitchen singing along to certain tracks and yeah. Brilliant. Here's another. So my dad, again, he loved Pink Floyd. I've got very, very fond memories of, you know, lots of Pink Floyd tracks, full blast in the car, my dad singing really loud. When my dad passed, me and my sisters, we all had 
these necklaces made, which you can probably see, called Ashes into Glass. And on the back, we all had engraved on the back, Wish You Were Here, because obviously the words are very fitting and it was one of my dad's favourite songs. Nice memories. I'm guessing he was a granddad, is that right? He was, yeah, to Finley, Oliver, Logan, Safi, Ada, and there is ba- another baby on the way, my sister. Yeah, she's pregnant. How many is that? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. It'll be six once this little one's born. And so he was a much-loved granddad, I'm guessing. He was. Sadly, when my dad passed, I was pregnant. So I was three months pregnant, and my sister, my older sister Camille, was nine months pregnant. So he unfortunately never got to meet Oliver, um, which is my little one, and Ada, who my sister gave birth to about four weeks after he passed. So yeah, sadly, he never got to meet them, although I'm sure he's watching down now. So yeah, but but Logan, Safi, and my eldest, Finley, absolutely doted on him. And he doted on them as well. You could just see his eyes sparkle when they were near him and yeah, he came to life. He loved them. My Finley still often asks, you know, is Grandad watching from heaven? And he's always asking about him. Yeah. So. Your dad was, he was very thoughtful and kind dad and granddad. I know that he's sent a really sweet voice message. Yeah. Your son wasn't well. We've spoken with other guests, the importance of not just music, but also having a voice recording because there's such immediacy. So it's something that, you know, you'll have for time immemorial, really. If you wouldn't mind sharing that with us. and Hi, Finn. Get well soon. Hope you're feeling better. See you soon. <laughs> it's quite short. I have quite a few. I've got a few videos of him reading stories to Finley, um, bedtime stories to him, and that particular one, which is one of my favourites, just because he's smiling, he's so happy, you know, he's just sending him a little get well soon message. I think you're absolutely right. It's so important and so nice to have those little snippets of memories. I am a massive photo person. I'm constantly taking photographs, constantly recording videos. And it's times like this when I'm just glad that I do. (laughs) I'm really glad that I've got those memories. It's brilliant you have video recordings also. Yeah, that's it. Image and you also have his voice. That's right. Can you tell me about the time before the pandemic broke? Tell me what was going on in your dad's life, what was going on in the world of your family, what what was happening? My dad was running his own business, so we were self-employed. He had a company called Technology Engineering, which was his baby, and he absolutely grafted for. He'd worked so hard to build that company up, and he was well-known and well-loved within his industry. He was so good at what he did. So he worked a lot. He had his own house in Stockport. My youngest sister, Jessica, still lived at home. She was at university studying to be a therapist, so she was still quite financially dependent, and home was with my dad. So she would be back at weekends. And sometimes during the week, she would be back on holidays. Every weekend or or most weekends, we saw my dad go walking, we'd go for pub lunch, we'd have him over here for a Sunday dinner. And that's just how life was. You know, we all worked during the week or we were at university or whatever was going on. Everyone had their own individual lives, but every weekend or most weekends, we came together. So that was that was normal life before everything went upside down you really looked after him then what a good luck in a way he had four daughters that was nice the roles reversed as he got a bit older I mean he was only 60 61 when he passed but 
it was very much, you know, we would nag him about certain things. You know, what have you eaten? Have you eaten your vegetables? And he'd be like, leave me alone. <laughs> so, but he equally looked after us. So if it was anything that he could help with, he was so handy with electrics. You know, he did all my alarm system, my security system on my house. If anything ever went wrong with the car or it would always be dad, dad. <laughs> and he would be there in a heartbeat. It's just that unconditional love that you can only get from a parent, you know. If there was anything at all, he would he would be there. So it was, we looked after him, but he equally looked after us too. Brilliant. The pandemic broke in March, and obviously there was the lockdown in March 2020. So talk me, take me from that point then through to when your dad fell ill and how he fell ill. For the first part of the pandemic he self-isolated so he had diabetes type 2 he was your average you know British 60 year old male that was probably ever so slightly overweight had you know and I say that you wouldn't look at him and think it it was just you know nowadays when you think of COVID victims everybody wants to put a medical label on it. So you feel automatically that you want to say, oh, well, you know, he had this or he had this, which could contribute to what happened to him. But he was your average 60-year-old male that lives in the UK. No massive ailments. He ran his own business. He was reasonably fit and well. Lots of walking. It was just so unlucky, so unfortunate. I mean, the first part of the pandemic, everyone was locked down. My dad was part of my bubble. So I was still going around and seeing him, but, you know, being very careful. We would have quiz nights every week, you know, where aunties, uncles, brothers, sisters, family, friends, we'd all get on and each week somebody would host the quiz night and it was so much fun. Virtually or how did you do it? Virtually, yeah. So it was all on Zoom or I think it was Zoom that we were using, you know, so it was all done virtually and we'd host quiz nights, you know, we'd have a few drinks together and it was so lovely and social and I've got some, even though I've got horrible memories from the pandemic, I've also got some really lovely ones. You know, I've got a book filled with the different questions and the quiz nights and my dad's quiz night that he did and what questions he had and so yeah and he was shielding because of his diabetes and stuff he got a letter from the GP to say you should shield so he was self-employed and you know health came first so he shield he he shielded at, at home after a while it gets to the point where the savings start to run out and you know, you're then in a financial position where you have no choice but to work or find some form of income, which I think was a struggle for a lot of people. He went for universal credits. He went for a few different options, business loans, and he got refused everything for one reason or another. And the fact of the matter is he had no income. He had no money coming in. But through technicalities, he couldn't access any of the help, which apparently was available So he had no choice but to say, look, girls, I have to go back to work. I have to pay my mortgage. I have to pay my bills. I think a lot of people were in that predicament. How did you feel when he said that? We had lots of harsh conversations 
you know, me and my sisters, we, the sad thing is we've got a text message conversation on a family WhatsApp group that we've got where we're saying to him, please don't go out to work. What if you catch it and die? You know, having this really awful conversation, little did we know that's exactly what the fates had in store for us. In March 2020, the government announced self-employment income support scheme which they were calling SEISS. And apparently that was there was a taxable grant worth 80% of your incomings. But even so, that only lasted three months. So presumably yeah. maybe your dad couldn't even qualify for that. But even then, didn't it qualify. short-lived three-month support, you know. That's it. That's it. I mean, he tried so many different options. In fact, I personally, I mean, I am like a dog with a bone with these kind of things. And I personally try to you know access some of these provisions that were in place and it was like hitting your head against a brick wall for one reason or another he couldn't access it you know whether it's technically what he earned in a year even though he didn't have access to that at that point in time or you know for whatever reason he just could not access it so you know in his head it was there's a no no choice I have to go out to work and I have to pay my bills because otherwise I'm not going to have a house. I can't feed myself. And, you know, he had Jessica back at home from university at that point. So it was it was it was a really difficult decision. He felt it was one that he had to make and it was a risk that he had to take to, you know, survive so he went out and he limited what work he was doing when did he go back to work he went back to work it must have been around january he wasn't fully back in work he was you know doing the odd days the odd jobs he would only take jobs where he was working outside in the open air this particular job where we think he caught covid he was working on student accommodation and it was like a door access control so he was doing all of the access control panels or something something had gone wrong in a school and he was fixing it part of the job he had to go inside inside the building that's where we think he caught covid he started coming off some medication i think it was for blood pressure or something like that and he was coming off the medication and he started to feel really rubbish it's january 2021 yeah january time yeah so he started to feel really unwell and my youngest sister who was at home phoned me and said he's gone to work but I don't think he should be in work. Yesterday he spent the day in bed and he was like shivering. And I was like what the heck is going on here then? So I phoned him up and he sounded dreadful and he was trying to go to work. He was in his van and I said he said I think it's this medication that I'm coming off. And I said that doesn't sound right. I'm no you know doctor but I don't think coming off a blood pressure medicine should make you feel like this. I said, your symptoms are very similar to my friend who had COVID. He was congested, he had fever, he felt sick, but he said his skin was sore. Um, you know, even the shirt on his back hurt his skin, which weren't typical COVID symptoms, but I know through a friend who had similar symptoms. So I said, I'm going to book you a test. We go and, you know, have it done. So I booked him the test and he went over, he had the test and he went home. And... The next day, I woke up to a text on my phone saying, Dad's got COVID, jumped up, jumped out of bed, phoned him 
and he sounded awful. He sounded really poorly. And it was kind of the start of a very nasty downward spiral. Some days he'd seem okay. He spent four days at home and me and my older sister would go and drop food shopping off. So, you know, we'd just buy microwavable meals because he, he just didn't feel like eating. He didn't want to cook. So we'd buy him, you know, things that he didn't have to do much with, leave it outside his door and he'd take it in and but he, he felt sick. I think he was being sick at one point. He didn't sound breathless or anything at this point. So we were really hopeful that, you know, he would have a nasty illness and then he'd start to feel better. But on the fourth day, I phoned him. He, he was speaking strangely. He sounded very confused. So I spoke to my sisters. We're quite lucky. We've got quite a lot of, you know, we've got a few doctors in the family and one consultant that was a consultant on the intensive care unit for COVID patients. So we spoke to him and he told us to buy one of these little machines that you put on the end of your finger. So we ordered one off Amazon for next day delivery and it came the next day and he put it on his finger. And I think his oxygen levels were something like 85, really low. At that point, we said we need to phone an ambulance. No, absolutely not. Please don't phone an ambulance. If I go in, I'll never come back out. And we were like, oh, come on, you know, don't be so morbid. You need to go in, get some oxygen therapy. You'll come back out. You'll feel much better. No, I'll be dead within 28 days. That's what it says online. Uh, within 28 days, you know, everyone dies. You know, he just had this horrible picture in his head of what was going to happen. But he couldn't have carried on at home. So we called an ambulance. Sure enough, his oxygen was so low that they took him straight in. He was on a normal COVID ward for a few days, two days, three days max, I think it was, on oxygen. And when I had phone in in the mornings, it would be, oh, he's gone from one litre of oxygen, he's now on two. Or, oh, he's on three litres of oxygen. And I think it was 15 litres is the maximum a normal ward can give you before you have to be moved into intensive care. And I phoned up one day and he was pretty much at the maximum intake. And he said to me, oh, damned. He was like, an intensive care doctor's come down and spoken to me. I think they're going to move me into intensive care. They've spoken about ventilation. Oh, my heart sank, absolutely sank. I got off the phone and I just sobbed. And I just thought, this cannot be happening. He was petrified. He was so scared. We only had access, you know, to him through, through his phone, really. And it was funny because while all this was going on, he was asking me, oh, do you think you could get some money out of the cash point to give to this gentleman who's in the bed next to me? He's got no money to get home. <laughs> you know, he was worrying about getting the man a taxi, you know, who's, who was in the bed next to him. Or, oh, do you think you can bring this up for this guy on, you know, who's across the way from me on this ward? He was worrying about everyone else. I did actually go in and drop some money off for this for this old man that was in the bed next to him. <laughs> but sure enough, the next, I think it was the next day or later that day, they moved him into ICU. And it was the start of what I can only describe as torture, torturous, hellish two weeks of constant ups and downs. One minute him being, you know, a bit brighter to the next minute. They're taking his tea and toast off him in the morning. They're not letting me have any breakfast. Well, why? Because they're ventilating. So only a few hours later, oh no, he can carry on today. So then the next day, they've given me tea and toast. I've taken one bite and they've come and taken it off me. Well, why? because they're going to ventilate. I'm scared. Oh, no, they've given me my tea and toast back now. It was a constant up and down, torturous. Are they going to do it? Are they not? The doctor's telling him, if you're ventilated, you've got a 1% chance of survival. 
you know, the COVID on your lungs is so bad that you're probably not going to survive. And at that point, he was petrified, absolutely petrified, because to him, it was the hangman's noose. They told him, if you're ventilated, it's a slow death. You know, it's it's the kind of way out rather than suffocating in your own lungs. You're going to go on a ventilator and at least you'll be asleep, but you'll the outcome will still pretty much be the same. There's a flicker of hope, 1%, but it's highly unlikely that you will survive. You know, and, and they told him this in, in front of my youngest sister. They actually asked my youngest sister to convince him, I think it was to go on the ventilator or not to go on the ventilator one or, or the other. You know, and it was, I think it was to be ventilated and, and he didn't want to, he was scared. And they wanted her to, to convince him to, you know, be ventilated because it was the kind of option. It was torturous absolutely torturous there were some days the ICU staff I mean this was just normal protocol at that point in time but they were allowing us to phone up once every three days so we could only get medical information once every three days surely that, which were, that, can't, be, that can't even be legal well apparently it was <laughs> they were so busy yeah I mean I phoned up is it called PAC or something like that it's like a team within the hospital that manage complaints they won't give us any medical information my dad's really scared his mental health is dwindling he's anxious you know he's poorly and we had to go through a different department to try and get any answers because at one point they just wouldn't speak to us because they were too busy you know which I understand must have been horrific for the staff involved but as a family member we were petrified we were scared that we were going to lose my dad and he was scared and it was just horrific and then you know, every day we could see that he was struggling. A CPAP machine, which is like a ventilator without being put to sleep, but they're quite difficult to be on and you tire quite quickly. And obviously you can't be on it all the time because you need to eat and drink. So then they'd move him onto a high flow, which goes up your nose, and then you've got your mouth free to have some food and water. His oxygen levels had become so bad, he was on the high flow, but he also needed to hold a bucket mask under his chin. So even when he was having a drink, there was still that extra bit of oxygen going into his mouth. And at that point, we could really start to see that it was going in a certain direction. We could see he was tiring. He was just so scared. It was awful, an absolutely awful experience. And then the day came. Were you able to communicate with him via his phone? We were talking every day on his phone, yeah. Exactly. So that's how you saw him? We were FaceTiming and we were speaking daily, multiple times throughout the day. And then on the 17th of February, he phoned me and he said, Dan, the doctor's going to phone you. And at that point, my heart sank and I knew. I knew if the doctor was phoning me that they were going to ventilate him. Sure enough, the doctor called and said he can no longer, he's too, he's too tired, he's agreed to be ventilated. Um, he must have been in such despair to agree to be ventilated. He must have been really feeling tired. And that was it. It was about half 11 in the morning. And me and my sisters and my dad had one last FaceTime over FaceTime. He was scared. He was crying. We were scared. You know, such a hard conversation to have because now I look back and I think I have regrets, not regrets as such, but I was trying to say to him, you're going to come out, you know, it's going to allow your body to have the rest that it needs. 
you need to be strong. There are hundreds of people all over the UK that are going through exactly the same thing as you right now, you know, whereas really I feel like I should have been, I don't know, I don't know what I could have done different, but just saying all these things, if I knew, you know, we still had so much hope that he would survive, but that has got to be probably hands down the most horrific, most tormenting experience of my life and my sister's. And that was it. I can just remember getting off the phone to him. I sat on my bedroom floor and I just sat there just numb. And and I think that was the moment that I switched off in every human way possible, emotionally, physically. I just, you know, became a robot to survive. And then it just got worse from there. Obviously, the hospital would only allow us every three days to gather information. He was on a ventilator. We had lost that communication that we were having daily with him. And it was really, really hard. We made complaints. There was one point I was so desperate. I said, I'm going to phone the police. I'm going to phone the police because they won't give me any information. I don't know if he's dead. I don't know if he's alive. I need something. And I phoned the hospital complaints department. And luckily, they spoke to the ICU staff. And they then agreed that once a day, a consultant would phone me. But I mean, I had to really kick and scream to get them to even do that. And then they were rude. Which hospital was that? Stepping Hill Hospital in Stockport. Some of the staff were lovely, so I can't say all, but... There were a few uh, that were really rude. There was one evening, they phoned me at 10 o'clock at night. We'd waited all day for any information on him. They phoned me, they said, your dad's kidneys are failing. He needs uh, a blood transfusion. He needs to go on dialysis. But he's got so much emphysema in his body where your lungs leak oxygen into your skin that we can't actually get the, you know, the needle in where it needs to go. So we probably can't use that machine. And... So he, you know, he, he probably will pass, and that's all. I've got no more time. Thanks, bye. And put the phone down on me. Oh, and right. I, I me and my sister were sat on my bed in my bedroom, heartbroken, sobbing, not knowing who to phone, where to go to. It was awful. Uh, they they said that we could go in at end of life, and then they would phone us in the morning and say he's probably going to pass today. His heart's failing. I was three months pregnant. My older sister was nine months, so they wouldn't let us in. My younger sister Corinne was in Plymouth at the time she was buying a house down here to be closer to my dad you know unfortunately when he caught covid so she was down in Plymouth so it was down to my youngest sister Jess to go into hospital cover herself in PPE and go in there and hold his hand and she did that twice thinking it was end of life and then it got to the point where me and my other sister said we're going in too and they let us in and there was one day they phoned us and they said to us it's it's getting to the point now where we think it's insurvivable his heart is failing we think it's time that you consider turning the machine off and it was in the morning we were all around my house and we thought my god we're not having that on our shoulders however long this process takes even though there's intervention with the machine he wouldn't be surviving right now anyway Um, but we can't turn that machine off We can't physically do it. If he's going to go, he's going on his own terms. And they asked us to go in for a meeting to to discuss it. And we said, okay, you know, we'll come in, we'll have a meeting and we'll have the conversation. But we're, you know, we're adamant that we're not turning that machine off. And we were driving over there and we got a phone call. Things are changing. How quick can you get here? He's going to pass naturally. And it just felt like they'd heard this, you know, my dad had heard this conversation it felt like he knew 
my girls aren't being put through that. I'm going to go on on my terms. And he waited until we got to the hospital and we ran. I shoved the car anywhere on the side of the road and we ran like our lives depended on it. We then had to shove the PPE on as quick as we could. You know, gloves, hairnets, shoe covers, a big plastic visor over your face, um, an industrial-like face mask, gloves, aprons. And we went in there and within 10, 15 minutes of his being by his bedside, he passed. My older sister, sadly, couldn't come in. She was... It was too risky for her being so close to a due date. And that was it. Yeah, he passed and we made it just in the nick of time. Were you able to speak to him? Yeah, he led there. We all held hands. We made a circle around him, basically. Hearing is the last thing to go. So he would have heard you. He would have heard your voices. He would have known that. Yeah, it's funny. We sang and held hands and yeah, as nice as it could have been made in the circumstances i can't remember what the song was but we i can remember us singing singing and holding his hand and you couldn't touch his face we had gloves on we held his hand he was covered in wires we say we couldn't we couldn't cry because you were so covered in pp you couldn't physically wipe your face you couldn't um if you cried and it became irritable or you couldn't get to your own face to wipe it so you know it was hard to breathe in the mask and just it was like something I can only describe it as being out of a film I can remember at one point thinking I was going to faint and I was thinking oh, I'm going to pass out but if I faint and they have to take my mask off and I catch COVID lose my baby or you know I'll never forgive myself so I just had to stand there try my hardest to hold my tears back even though it was near on impossible but yeah, we broke the rules. We held his hand. We, I mean, we had our gloves on and stuff, but we touched his face. What a horrendous thing that you were put through. I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like to have to wait for three days for any information about a parent or a loved one who's so seriously ill. As you say, torture, I mean, just heartless. Felt inhumane. I mean, like I said, at one point, I threatened to phone the police. I was so desperate, so desperate. I just didn't know what to do. And, you know, I feel sorry for the staff. For them, it must have been normal practice. And, you know, there were so many full beds, you know, it was just and the people that were in ICU the people that weren't on a ventilator there was one day my dad said to me the lady next to me has been put on a ventilator today and then the day after oh she's being taken out in a blue box what does that mean I wonder what the blue box means well now we know that was the color box that they were removing the the bodies in as they passed away I mean how scary that must have been for him truly awful mm. oh. Talk me through what happened after that moment when you, you lost your dad in those circumstances. We were asked to go and wait in a waiting area. They brought out a hazard bag. So it was like a it looked like a big bin bag with a big hazard sign on it. And they said, don't open it for, you know, the next five days, I think it was. And it was full of my dad's shoes, his jeans, his shirt, his wallet, the bits that he came into hospital with. Gave us this bag and, you know, we just remember me and my sisters walking out we didn't speak a word just carrying this hazard bag back to the car and that bag remained in the boot of my car for about two months I couldn't move it and that was it we sat at home we were then technically not allowed to be together because we were separate bubbles and we weren't allowed to be together because it was locked down and that was it we couldn't you know we weren't allowed to see anyone for comfort or you know it was just 
and then that was it. We, we we didn't have a mom or anyone to pick up the pieces. It was we need to start planning the funeral. We need to speak to a coroner. You know, we need to plan to, you know, all these things that you just don't even know at the age of 35, you know, how to what happens when somebody dies or how to get a death certificate, what the process is. But my God, we had to learn fast. And it was just you couldn't be human. You couldn't think you couldn't grieve. You couldn't do any of these things. You know, it was horrific. You have shared with me this whole series of stolen goodbyes. I've called distorted grief because just the manner of the loss that so many death rituals were denied that many people feel that their loss is surreal or dreamlike and they have suffered in many sort of physical ways as well as well as mental anguish and all of this really this trauma complicated trauma is not recognized by really the government or the public so it's a huge huge thing and you have told me that you know you've suffered in many ways and that for the first year what happened your loss was just a complete blur but then you there are so many triggers for you as well I wondered if you could explain how that happens what it feels like yeah I mean I totally agree it is completely unrecognized you know I look back you know or even at my situation now I haven't seen friends in months and you know, you can look at grief and say certain things are normal for grief, normal grieving processes. For a good 18 months, I was just completely a shell, numb. Um, I couldn't feel, I struggled to cry. Um, yeah, I just completely struggled to register what had happened, probably because it felt so far from reality what we'd experienced couldn't possibly be real. Things like the funeral, like what you were mentioning with, you know, the normal processes when somebody dies, we couldn't dress my dad. We had to have a closed coffin. They wanted us to wheel the coffin for his funeral, wheel it through rather than have him carried on our shoulders. We refused, absolutely not. So right at the last minute, everyone picked the coffin up and it was carried how he should have been carried. A lot of the processes we weren't able to have. I think it was 30 people max at the time, or it might have been 10. And then people decided to line up outside, which was apparently illegal. We weren't allowed to gather, but people chose to outside. It was awful. There was no wake. And then the aftermath, yeah, completely numb. And then after about 18 months. I went to Cornwall. We went back for our annual holiday. He died in the February. That July, I couldn't stomach going. I couldn't face going without him. So one of my sisters went, the rest of us didn't. And then last year, I decided to go. And I feel like that was the nail in the coffin. Or it might have been the point at which I was able to see what had happened and accept it. And it was a few days after we got back, I took my two little boys to the aquarium and I was driving on the motorway and it was like a light switch went off in my head and I com- was borderline unconscious. I didn't have time to brake the car. All I could do was put the hazards on and hit the brakes. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to crash with my two babies in the car. I thought I was having a stroke or a heart attack. I called 999, luckily made it to the side of the road and long story short, it was diagnosed as a panic attack I mean what I experienced was a physical I felt like I was having a heart attack and from that moment on 
it became a daily occurrence where I would struggle to be in the car. I would struggle to have conversations with people. I would feel myself getting, you know, unable to hold eye contact, fidgety, nervous, uncomfortable. I would feel very dizzy and lightheaded. At the time, it felt like I didn't recognise what was making me feel that way. Now I noticed the triggers. It could be somebody wearing a face mask. It could be somebody making a joke about covid or saying, oh, my auntie, my auntie's got COVID. Something as simple as that to any normal person would water off a duck's back, but to maybe me and my sisters, and it felt like somebody was sat on my chest, a tightening of my throat, I couldn't breathe. What I now notice is I start holding my breath, but I don't realise that I'm holding my breath until I feel like I'm about to pass out. And at that point, I think, oh, gosh, I'm holding my breath again. You know, and it's a constant... And I'm a very strong-willed, you know, I've got a great job. You know, I've never suffered with mental health before. I'm a big advocate for talking therapies. And I notice if my mood's low and I take care of myself. And all of a sudden, I am completely and utterly consumed with anxiety and stress. And I've been battling that for the last year. And I just can't seem to shake it for love nor money well that's very powerful to have a reaction like that if you just happen to see someone with a face mask very very difficult reality yeah I mean my my therapist has called it um, complex PTSD and it's complex because there's so many triggers so many factors that can make you feel a certain way for for whatever reason the car is a big one whether it was that car journey driving over to the hospital the panic of getting there before he passed, you know, not being able to park the car, just shoving it anywhere that I could and running, you know, it could be that, but I really struggled to be in a car. My career, I've driven across the country all my life, well, you know, for the last God knows how many years, you know, a really competent, confident driver, and I just can't, even five minutes on a dual carriageway, and I feel like I can't breathe, you know, I constantly up, down, up, down on the window. I feel like I shouldn't be driving a car, but at the same time, I don't want to be defeated. You know, I don't want this to win. Other triggers include hearing a heart monitor. You uh, yeah, anything. It could it could pop up on the t- on the telly. It could be you know casualty or maybe something on the news or you know something that even being in hospital, you know. My little one was poorly and ended up in hospital for a few days. And it was just the most triggering experience hearing the machines, the smells, they're massive triggers, massive triggers. And I know they are for my sisters as well. Yeah, there's no help. There's no recognition. No, if you go to a GP, you know, they'll say you can refer yourself for talking therapies. I did exactly that. And I still not had a phone call to this day. And this was the best part of two years ago. I now pay privately to see someone weekly there has been no help no support nothing specific for covid the best luck somebody's got is to either sit on a waiting list or fork out and pay for private treatment you mentioned that hearing boris johnson's name is a trigger yeah huge trigger huge trigger i find it so painful and hurtful just the whole experience, the delayed lockdowns, Partygate. To some people, Partygate is quite funny. To me, it's extremely painful, extremely hurtful. You know, that while we were restricting ourselves, 
saying goodbye to my dad via FaceTime, unable to hold his hand and comforting him in probably the most terrifying, scary moment of his life. And they're enjoying a bottle of champagne and, you know, having cake around a table, regardless of the circumstances. You know, it's cruel, it's unfair and it's not right. I lost my dad last year, thankfully not to COVID, but still obviously, you know, it's a it's a major loss. Last month I lost my brother, two losses within a year. Very hard. I feel that there's family is the sort of bedrock of life and that it these is. tectonic plates for me have shifted uh, substantially and it's it's quite a scary feeling. Can you relate to that? Oh, absolutely. You know, to be in a position at the age of 35 where you have no parents and all of a sudden the foundation of what life is, was, your security blanket, things that you just don't even realise your parents do for you until they're gone, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're doing it alone. You've got no one to fall back on. It's just me and my sisters. Obviously, we have our husbands and you know, external family members, aunties, uncles. But the reality is, I mean, I don't know about you, I can only speak for myself, but, you know, how involved aunties and uncles get. We do have one auntie, my mum's sister, she she became very involved and she's been really lovely and supportive. My auntie Marie, she is like a second mother to all of us, a really lovely, wonderful woman. And she was a good friend to my dad as well, a really good friend he loved her you know but yeah it does it's learning to live again isn't it when these things happen it's learning to be a grown-up all of a sudden you know you haven't got your parents and yeah you've just got to start walking in their shoes and you've got to learn very quickly and the sad thing is when you've got PTSD or other things which have come from it trauma and you're trying to heal yourself it's extremely difficult to even start to think about grieving you know it is many of the guests on the podcast have spoken about feelings of surreality that they feel that their loved one could suddenly appear or the loss is not real do you relate to that in any way 100 percent yeah, I've I've really struggled with this. I've had moments where I've woken up in the morning and gone to text my dad or, in fact, Saturday just gone. I woke up and I was adamant that we were seeing my dad that day. And it took me 20 to 30 minutes to realise that he was gone. And that was it then. I spent the rest of the day sobbing and my, my husband trying to pick up the pieces and you know desperately trying to be a happy mom for my children and but in that moment it was like he'd just passed and I spent I spent the day feeling just rock bottom you know unable to believe that he had passed I found myself constantly trying to look at photos which is quite sad because there were when we were on FaceTime with my dad um several times like my we were all pulling faces or joking around and my sister would take a screenshot so we've got a few pictures of this a phone screen and it's kind of like split up into five and it's my dad and my my three sisters and me and I look back and I have to look at those pictures to sometimes understand that he's gone and that that really happened it's a very hard one to explain it's very hard and even harder to to live yeah and difficult for the outside world to understand as well because I haven't been through it exactly yeah you've got a lot going on you've got obviously the loss of your dad complicated grief you've got 
PTSD and you're a mother to young children. Uh, challenging. Can I ask you the thing that you miss the most about him? I mean, I, it's a very big question, but, you know, what is it that you miss the most? I, I miss the so much. Just him being there at the end of the phone, just the warmth, his laugh, the twinkle that he had in his eye, you know, watching him play with Finley. There's so much that I miss about him, but just mainly having him there, having him sometimes just be there, not saying anything, but just listening. He was such a great listener. You know, any trouble, any worries, any problems, he would be there in a heartbeat. Having that disappear is such a void, such a hole. You know, the world you know, suddenly feels a much lonelier place without him in it. So, yeah, that's what I miss the most. I miss him. What was his laugh like? Cheeky, <laughs> mischievous, you know, just he was very cheeky and mischievous. Funny. He was a funny character. <laughs> yeah, he would. He was just a lovely, funny, kind, gentle soul. He had a kind soul. Was he laid to rest with your mum? Was that something that he wanted or...? No, where my mum was buried, it was an old family grave that only has one spot left in it, and that's taken by my gran, who's still with us today. So he wasn't allowed to pinch that spot. But what we did is we have had a beautiful bench in the same cemetery in a garden of remembrance, and it's very pretty, lovely roses, and um, we've had a big bench put in there, yeah, with some words written on it that remind us of my dad. But we had somebody put the heart on the memorial wall in London. Yeah, so he's got a heart with his name on it on the wall. Wonderful. Which hopefully, hopefully they keep. What are the words on the bench? It says something like, off the top of my head, it's something like, shine on you crazy diamond, um, forever missed, always loved. It's something like that, you know, right. father, yeah, great father. Yeah, it's just got a nice piece about who he was, yeah. And finally, can I ask you what his legacy is? His legacy is his family, his daughters, me and my sisters. Cornwall will be his biggest legacy. I feel like Cornwall is like second home. Family tradition of Cornwall will live on for many years. Our children will continue going and hopefully when they have children, they will continue going. We scattered his ashes in Cornwall and we had a beautiful memorial a year, a year and a bit after. So that will be his legacy. Yeah, he will live on in me and my sisters and we'll make sure that we do him proud. And you met your husband there as well. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we've been together 22 years now. How did you meet? Out of interest? Camping, yeah. So we've been going to the same campsite every year, same time of year. I was there with my dad and my sisters. He was there with his hockey team and we were 16 at the time and we met and I was in the pub, the local pub, having dinner with my dad and my sisters and he was there with his friends and um, yeah, we became friends and the rest is history. 22 years later, two children and a house. Wonderful. Yeah. So that's brilliant a brilliant part of that legacy yeah so thank you so much danielle for sharing that story which is very very painful at times and also really importantly for shining a light on the pain and suffering that people are going through many people only just experiencing now three years after the pandemic began so really really important and thank you for doing that so articulately Oh, thank you, Karen. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me and allowing me to remember our wonderful dad. Yeah, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. With Danielle's powerful interview, we have reached the end of this season. 
and what an important season it's been. We've learned about and raised awareness that people who lost to COVID-19 are only beginning to grieve now, that's three years after the event. And yet there is no support for people facing this most complicated, delayed and what I'm calling distorted grief. We have also shone a light on the surreality of grief to COVID-19 and how that manifests itself. Thank you for listening and for supporting Stolen Goodbyes. This is a really important and unique corner of the audio internet where the COVID bereaved get to have a voice, recognise their loved ones and in turn help others in the grieving process. Please let your friends and family know about Stolen Goodbyes and share the podcast with them. Please subscribe and review, it really helps. Also, please follow Stolen Goodbyes on social media under Stolen Goodbyes on Instagram and Facebook or on Twitter at RiceKMC. If you'd like to make a donation, the price of a coffee would be great. You can do so via my website, which is www.karen-rice.com or you can find a link in the show notes. If you'd like to share your story, then please email stolengoodbyes at gmail.com and I'll get back to you. There are some really exciting plans for the next seasons of Stolen Goodbyes and I look forward to sharing them with you. So take care and good luck. Mm -hmm.